Well, always a privilege to open God's word together. Uh, we have sung the praises to our King. Remember the cross of our Savior, and now it's time to hear Jesus speak to us. That's what we see in John 15. Join me in your Bibles there, John chapter 15. And we are picking up where we left off last week in that well-known word picture about a vine and its branches. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. As a reminder of where we are here, John 15 is a chapter of warning. John 14 was a chapter of hope and promise. But as chapter 15 opens here, Jesus and his apostles have left the safety and the security of that upper room You see that at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. They've begun to make their way to the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows full well what is about to take place in a matter of moments. In fact, chapter 13, verse 27, you remember Jesus' words to Judas, what you do, do quickly. He sends the betrayer away to do his worst. Jesus knows the power of darkness that is about to set upon him. He knows that his departure is near. He knows that his time with his apostles is short. And so he focuses his final few moments with these men to prepare them, prepare them for two main threats, two gospel threats they will experience the moment he has taken from them. Can broaden this out. Gospel threats we experience today as believers. These are threats that will span the time between Christ's arrest and his return. And the two main threats Jesus warns about here, first, it's a threat of gospel deception. Gospel deception And the second is the threat of gospel persecution. Gospel deception and gospel persecution. We're focusing on that very first threat, gospel deception in verses one through 11, where Jesus, in a very picturesque, memorable way, he makes a series of contrasts in picture form. Contrasts of his gospel, the one true gospel with the false gospel. Contrast between a life-giving vine that was planted by God the Father, again contrasted with the fruitless branches, the false vine, with those branches being thrown into the fire. Read the story, set it in our mind, start in verse one, we'll read through verse six. And Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. You can stop there. Remember from last week, we're breaking up the story here. Two movements. We first have the false gospel warned and then we have the true gospel pictured. We're in that first movement the false gospel warned. And Jesus is giving four warnings of this false gospel. We saw the first two last week, four warnings. But the first was this, warning number one, false gospels are Christless gospels. False gospels are Christless gospels. The story is clear. This is how Jesus starts. Only Jesus is the true vine planted by his father. It's verse one, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. It's a picturesque way of saying that only Jesus is the true savior sent from heaven by God. It's a way of saying that God's saving sap only flows through Christ. Again, contrasted here with a false vine. A false vine that produces poisonous fruit. And who is this false vine, poisonous vine? Well, as we saw last time, it's what Israel had become. Israel wants nothing to do with her Messiah. Israel is God's choice vine, Old Testament. But they have become the very ones who are about to cut down the true vine. Israel, whose religious leaders are right now meeting with Jesus' betrayer, making plans for his arrest, preparing to turn him over to Pilate, who will condemn him to execution. We developed all of that last time, but the main point is simply this. Jesus is the only vine through which his saving sap flows. Jesus is the only way to God. And there are other vines out there, other false gospels. And those false gospels claim that there are other saviors, other doors into God's house, other gates to God's pasture, that throughout this entire gospel, what is Jesus said? I am, and then follow it up. I am, I'm the only one. Here, he's the only vine. Yes, there's barren vines, there's poisonous vines, but he's the vine that the God has given. That's the first warning. False gospels are Christless gospels. It led into a second warning, which is this. False gospels are commitmentless gospels. False gospels are commitmentless gospels. And you see this warning in the contrast Jesus makes between the branches that are only superficially attached to the vine and the branches that actually abide, keyword, abide in the vine. You see the difference in verse 4 and verse 6. Notice verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me. That's the gospel call. That's a command. Abide in me. And here's the promise. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. But notice the contrast, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away into the fire and is burned. Burned. 
And so abide there is that key word, that key word in the story. It's a reference to saving faith, saving faith. It's another way of speaking of believing in Jesus. To abide in Christ is to rely in his perfect life for your righteousness before God. To abide in Christ is to rest on his sacrificial death as payment for your sin debt you owe God. And again, we saw that last time in John chapter six. Jesus uses the word abide with reference to believe. But here Jesus uses abide and not simply believe. Why? Because he's driving home something and it is this, saving faith remains, it abides, it continues. Saving faith perseveres. Saving faith does not let go of Jesus. It stays faithful until the end. This has been the contrast between the gospels throughout this book. Saving faith is a lifelong commitment, not a temporary attachment. Saving faith is permanent, not passing. And so grasp the scene here, and this makes sense why Jesus would use this word abide, because Jesus knows the temptation these apostles will face, again, in a matter of moments. They will soon see Judas, one of their own. They will see Judas betray Jesus with a kiss. And then even more, they will see the religious leaders treat Jesus as a blasphemer. And then they will see the Roman soldiers arrest Jesus in chains. And then they'll see him hang on a cross. Here's the temptation. Will they continue to abide in Christ? Given all of that, will they be persistent in their faith, continual in their faith? Will they believe in him and rest in him? Will they cling, cling to him through all of that? Or will they show themselves to be that sucker plants like Judas? Judas attached himself superficially to the vine, to Jesus. But again, that was short-lived. Again, to the point, the point, Saving faith is abiding faith. Saving faith is abiding faith. It's remaining faith, persevering faith, and thus false gospels are commitmentless gospels. Think of Jesus' words in Mark 13. It is only the one who endures to the end who will what? Be saved. Think of Jesus' words back in John 8. It is only if you continue, that's the word abide, only if you abide, remain, continue in my word, then and only then are you truly, truly my disciples, truly saved, truly attached to the vine. So do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. A gospel that costs you nothing, a gospel that does not call for commitment is worth nothing. It's worth nothing. So that's where we left off. Brings us to the third and fourth warnings this morning. Start with warning number three here. Warning number three is this. False gospels are also fruitless gospels. False gospels are also fruitless gospels. 
And at this point now, Jesus is answering the necessary question. The question is this, how do you know if you are truly abiding, believing in the vine? How do you know that? That should be the question we're asking at this moment. How do you know if you are truly attached to God's saving sap? Use Jesus' imagery. How do you know that Christ is indeed your savior? Well, the answer to these questions, according to Jesus, is not because you can recite the gospel message. That's not Jesus' answer. And it's not because you have sound theology, because even the demons believe that. And it's not because you have attached yourself to the people of God. That's something Judas could have said. And it's not because you have confessed Jesus with your mouth sometime in the past. Again, that's something Judas could have said. Even the demons have confessed Jesus. You are the son of God. None of those, none of those answers are sufficient reasons to find assurance of our attachment to Christ. None of those are proofs of God's saving sap flowing through you. No, Jesus' answer is far different. Jesus' answer is that the mark of true salvation is that you bear fruit. You bear fruit. That's Jesus' mark. That's Jesus' answer. Outside of that word abide, fruit is the most important word in the story. It's obvious. Five times it's used in the first six verses, eight times through verse 10. The point of the story is that bearing fruit in our lives is the only, mark it, the only visible mark that proves the genuineness of our faith. Look at verse eight. This is clear. Verse eight. My father is glorified by this. By what, Jesus, that you bear much fruit? Now watch. And so by doing this, you prove, you put on display, visible way. You prove to be my disciples. You showcase the genuineness of your faith. Saving faith is dynamic faith. Saving faith does not hibernate or lie dormant. Saving faith is growing faith. It does not wither on the vine. Saving faith is budding faith, blossoming faith. It's not barren or an empty wasteland. Saving faith is fruit-producing faith, and thus fruitless faith is a false gospel. Now, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Because fruitlessness is the very reason God pronounced judgment upon Israel in the Old Testament. Listen to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, here's the psalmist's song. It starts out joyous. You removed a vine from Egypt. The psalmist is tracing Israel's past here. You drove out the nations and planted it. Yahweh chose Israel to be his people. He miraculously delivered Israel from Egyptian captivity. You cleared the ground before it. God gave them the promised land. 
and it took deep root and filled the land. They entered the land with so much promise. But then the song turns into a dirge because now this beautiful vineyard has turned into a fruitless field. Verse 13, a boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the fields feeds on it. This is God's judgment. This is not blessing. The shoot which your right hand has planted, it is burned. And just keep that image in mind. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. Israel was judged, Israel was cut down, it was burned because they had become an unfruitful vineyard. Idolatry filled the land. Disobedience was their yield. You have the same kind of movement in Isaiah 5. Again, Isaiah's song starts out with so much joy, so much promise. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, speaking of God, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile field, Jerusalem, the hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. Next word, but something else happened. But it produced only worthless ones, poisonous fruit. This is, again, idolatry, disobedience, heartless worship, sin. And because of that poisonous fruit, notice verse five, Yahweh says, so now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. He's angry. The gardener now enters the field. And looking at the fruitless yield, he says, I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. And that word there, consumed, you can translate it as burns. Again, same image. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay waste, lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns, the weeds will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. Words from the gardener. Words of judgment, Why? because it had become a poisonous field, a fruitless vine. So what does God do in the Old Testament? He breaks down its walls. He allows the Babylonian army, 586 BC, to enter the city in judgment. That word consumed or burned, he allows Nebuchadnezzar to burn the city to the ground. That's the history That's the word picture Jesus is drawing off of in John 15. And Jesus says here, back to John 15, Jesus says, not only did God bring fiery judgment upon fruitless Israel in the past, but make no mistake, God will also bring judgment upon fruitless individuals here in the present. That's the warning Look at verse two. 
Every branch in me, again, that's superficial attachment. We looked at that last time. Superficially attaching to Jesus. This is, this is profession, but again, no fruits, no commitment. Again, this is like Judas. This is like the John 6 crowd. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the gardener, the father, takes them away. That's a warning. And it's normal farming imagery here. This is what you would expect to happen. Every year, late fall, early winter in Palestine, the gardener would inspect his vineyard. If there was any dead wood, anything withering, non-producing branches, he would cut them off. He would remove them from the plant. Why? Because fruitless branches are diseased branches or fruitless branches are lifeless branches. And again, all of this is in the context of warning. And notice how personal and how serious Jesus' words are here. He's talking about individuals. Drop down to verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus says, I chose you. That's personal. It's an individual choice here. We're not talking about a nation as a whole. I chose you personally, individual people. This is a choice before the foundation of the world. I chose you, elected you, and appointed you, again, personal, appointed you that you, speaking to apostles, by extension, all believers, I chose and appointed you that you would go and what? Bear fruit. That's my choosing of you. That's my appointing of you. Fruit bearing is Christ's intention for his people. Fruit bearing shows that you are truly attached to the Father's vine. Fruit bearing shows that you have been chosen in eternity past and that you have been appointed to salvation in the present day. J.C. Ryle put it this way, so good. Election, he writes, election. Again, God's choosing of us is always to sanctification. So you can't separate the two. Election and sanctification. Those whom Christ chooses out of mankind, he chooses not only that they may be saved, but that they may bear fruit. That's part of his electing grace. And, Ryle says, fruit that can be seen. All other election beside this is a mere vain delusion and a miserable invention of man where there is no visible fruit of sanctification, we may be sure there is no election. Fruitlessness is an indication of lifelessness. Look back to verse 16 here. Notice the fruit that Jesus appoints for his people is not just any kind of fruit, no. It is lasting fruit, again, visible fruit, verse 16, and that your fruit would remain. And guess what word he uses there? Meno, abide, continue. So connect the two. Abiding faith produces abiding fruit. While temporary 
selfish, superficial faith produces temporary, selfish, superficial fruit. And it's good for one thing, to be thrown away. Now again, this should not be new for us to hear. It was Jesus who said, you will know them by their what? By their fruits. It's made evident, clear. It was Paul who wrote, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Why does God create us? Why does he choose us? What does he appoint us to? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, good fruit, lasting fruit. And notice the connection now to election, which God prepared beforehand from eternity past so that we would walk in them. Think of Titus 2. And notice the connection now to the death of Christ, fruitfulness to the death of Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, that sacrifice. And though, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, zealous to produce good fruit. Christ redeems us, yes, from sin, but he redeems us unto holiness, unto fruitfulness. Again, the point is simply this. Christ's choosing of us was not only a choosing for heaven. No, it's also a choosing for fruit bearing. And Christ's dying for us was not only to pay for our sins, but also to secure our obedience. And thus, for the branch that has no fruit, no life, no true attachment to the vine, it has, again the warning, no value to the farmer. It's a weed, it's a tear. And so back to verse two. The gardener, and this is God the Father, he takes that fruitless branch away and then verse six explains what the Father does with that branch. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, this is a universal truth now. I think Jesus has Judas in mind. It goes beyond that. To anyone, every Judas-like believer any barren branch. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. He dries up. He's good only for kindling. And the gardener saves them until the right time in the story and then gathers them. This is a reference now to final judgment where every unbeliever will be gathered to stand before Christ at the great white throne. And they will be cast into the fire, and they are burned. Same imagery of Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. It carries over. This is a reference to eternal hell. Now, some would want to interpret this warning of fire and burning of these fruitless branches as a threat of you losing your eternal reward. That's one interpretation. But that cannot be what Jesus means here. He is referencing hell. 
Let me give you two reasons why this is a reference to eternal hell. Two reasons. Number one, because fire is a common Jewish description of divine judgment upon unbelievers. This is a common picture. Think of Exodus 9. Yahweh sent down fire to the earth. Leviticus 10, fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol. So fire very often is an Old Testament description of divine judgment upon unbelievers. But second, perhaps even more significant, is that this image of fire and this image of burning has been used by Jesus himself numerous occasions throughout his ministry with reference to only one place, and that's eternal hell. Think of Matthew chapter five. Jesus warns of the fiery hell. He uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna, that's the word for the garbage dump, the ready-made picture of what hell is about, the garbage dump in Jerusalem. Think of Mark 9. Jesus describes hell as unquenchable fire. Think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul writes that the Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And what does he do? He deals out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They have no fruit. There's no obedience. You can compare John 15 with Matthew 13 and the wheat and the tares. There, Matthew 13, Jesus says the tares are gathered up and burned with fire. And then no, so shall it be at the end of the age. That's final judgment. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. It's very familiar now, similar to the fruitless branches. They'll be gathered And those who commit lawlessness, again, poisonous fruit, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a reference to eternal hell. You can trace this fire judgment imagery throughout the rest of the New Testament. This is John the Baptist warning every tree that does not bear good fruit, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he promises of the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, again, eternal hell, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is common language. The writer of Hebrews, he warns this. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, fruitfulness, that ground receives a blessing, salvation, joy. 
but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, it is fruitless. And notice, close to being cursed. That is to say it's on its way to judgment. And it ends up being burned. And so all of that throughout the New Testament, even the old, all of that references to eternal hell. And so it comes as no surprise then, no surprise then in Revelation chapter 20, as the conclusion now of history, the conclusion begins, you have this statement. I saw a great white throne and on that throne sat Christ himself. And I saw the dead, this is now all unbelievers, I saw the dead, it's only unbelievers. The great and the small, everyone's there, every unbeliever, standing before the throne. They've been gathered, they've been brought. And books were opened and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Here's Christ's judgment based upon the unbeliever's poisonous fruit. And based upon that judgment, notice verse 15, they are thrown into the lake of fire. That's the warning Jesus issues here in verse six. Fruitless gospels are poisonous gospels. Do not be deceived. Fruitless branches will be burned. And no severe words, I think, could ever be uttered. Leads into the fourth warning. We've already dealt with it. Warning number four. False gospels are also judgmentless gospels. False gospels are also judgmentless gospels. Again, listen to J.C. Ryle. There are false Christians as well as true ones. There are branches in the vine which appear to be joined to the parent's stem and yet bear no fruit. There are men and women who appear to be members of Christ and yet will prove finally to have no vital union with him. There are myriads of professing Christians in every church whose union with Christ is only outward and formal. That was over 100 years ago. We can say that today, easily. Their union with him is only nominal and not real, useless and unsightly. Such branches are only fit to be cut off and burned. Just so will it be at the last day with false professors and nominal Christians. Their end, except they repent, will be destruction. They will be separated from the company of true believers and cast out as withered, useless branches into everlasting fire. They will find at last whatever they thought in this world, that there is a worm that never dies and a fire that is not quenched. Again, these are the warnings from Jesus. False gospels are Christless gospels, commitmentless gospels here, fruitless 
and judgmentless gospels. Now let's bring some application. That's the story on one side of it. Let's bring some application. I want to give you three ways you can apply these words, these warnings. First application. We can examine our own faith, can examine our own faith, our own commitment to Christ to see if we are truly abiding in our Savior. This is a personal application. We can see if we are truly attached to God's vine if we have truly come to Jesus in saving faith. And I get this application from Peter who says, be all the more diligent, do the hard work, be diligent in this to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. That's Peter's challenge to his readers. And no doubt in the back of Peter's mind is Judas. He saw this firsthand he saw how close someone could be to Jesus, how much they could look the part, how good someone could be at fooling the onlookers. All, all while truly never belonging to the vine. Peter's command here is make sure you're not a Judas branch. Paul says similar words, test yourselves, he says, to see if you are truly in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. And amazing, both of those commands to test our faith, they're written to churches. This is not to the world. It's to the church. And so how do we test this? What do we look for? How do we examine ourselves? Again, back to verse eight here. Verse eight, my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What are we looking for? What, what fruit proves this? Just wanna give you some general, we'll look at these more in the weeks to come. Here's some general fruits that prove the reality of your faith. The first fruit is, are you satisfied in Christ's love for you? Are you satisfied in Christ's love for you? Or is it secondary, tertiary? Look at verse nine. On the heels of this conversation of being fruitful, Jesus says here in verse nine, just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in, cling to, be satisfied with, cherish my love. So do you seek the approval of this world? That's what you care about. Are you satisfied with Christ's love for you? Are you searching a greater love? Sure, I have Christ's love, but I need something more and better. Second fruit that proves the reality of our faith, do you joy, find joy in God's glory? Do you find joy in God's glory? That's verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Do you find joy in Christ? It's a mark of abiding in him. Do you glory in your salvation? 
Do you prize your relationship with Jesus? Do you possess the fruit of Christian joy? It's a fruit of salvation. Third, and do you have the fruit of loving other believers? Loving other believers. And now you're just saying I'm meddling. Do you have the fruit of loving other believers? That's verse 12. It's clear. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Repeat it for emphasis, verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Do you love the people of God? Do you love the people of God? You know you love Christ because you love his people. And 1 John has a ton to say on that. No doubt John getting that from this chapter. Number four, fourth fruit here. To prove that we're abiding in the vine, this is the fruit of a decreasing love of yourself. A decreasing love of yourself. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. But then Jesus defines what that love looks like. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. It's a sacrificial love. Do you have a love for your fellow believers that drives you to serve them? and care for them. It's a decreasing love of yourself and an increasing love for others. Notice a fifth fruit. There's many more. Again, in the weeks that follow, we'll look at these. But do you produce the fruit of obedience in life, an obedient life? That's a fruit of salvation. Verse 14, you are my friends. You truly belong to me. You're abiding in the vine. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Decreasing in sinfulness, increasing in obedience. It's not perfection at all. But again, it's a growth. That's just a sampling. There's many more. That's just a sampling of the fruit of salvation Jesus mentions here. But now notice, notice as you do evaluate yourself, notice the character of the fruit that proves our salvation, the character of the fruit. All of these are supernatural fruits, all of them. We cannot produce these things on our own. These are not check boxes. Went to church Sunday, check. Put something in the offering plate, check. Uh, got a coffee from Mocha for missions, check. These are hard attitudes. Each of these, love, you cherish love, uh, the love of Christ. This is, this is peace. You're finding joy in God's glory, peace with others. There's joy here, there's selflessness, there's obedience. Look at verse five, 15.5. This is why Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you have no true, genuine, real fruit. This is the fruit that only God's sap through Christ can nourish and grow. So that's the first way. 
the first way we can apply Jesus's parable here to our own life. We can examine the nature of our faith. Second way we can apply this. We can commit ourselves to warn about the severity of hell when we give the gospel to unbelievers. We can commit ourselves to warn about the severity of hell when we give the gospel to unbelievers. We need to ask ourselves this question, have we fallen victim to a judgmentless gospel? I'm not saying, do you believe a judgmentless gospel? It's a different question. Have we, put it this way, grown quiet when speaking about eternal hell? Because quite frankly, that doesn't fly today. Here's the statistic. 99% of Americans do not expect to go to hell when they die. 99%. To most, hell is a myth. Interesting, it's become more of a myth the less the church actually talks about it. Don't know if there's a correlation. One author wrote this, after decades of near obscurity, the netherworld has taken on a new image, more of a deep funk than a pit of fire. It's true. And yet amazingly in John 15, hell is an essential element of his gospel. Mark this, Christ is not ashamed of hell. God is not embarrassed about it. Why? Because only by grasping the terrors of hell can you, a sinner, rightly consider the weight of your own sinfulness. Without hell, we cannot understand the holiness of God. Without hell, we cannot understand just how serious sin is. It's an impossibility. The flip side is also true. It is only by grasping the horrors of hell that someone can rightly understand Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the torment that he endured, his grace, his love for us, the infinite glories of our salvation. Muting hell dilutes the cross. Muting hell obscures the holiness of God and at the same time bolsters the sinner's pride. May that not be the way we speak of Christ's gospel. May we not be ashamed of what Christ is not ashamed of. May we not fall victim to a judgmentless gospel. And then third, a third way we can apply Jesus's warning here we can allow the reality and the seriousness of hell to energize our evangelism for others. How can the image of verse six not compel our love for an unbeliever? Sinclair Ferguson has written this. He's right. Behind everyone we know and meet stands the shadow of judgment we can use Jesus's words, not just the shadow of judgment, but the fire of judgment. They themselves do not see it. We know they may have spent all their lives denying it or hiding from it, but one day the account will be presented, the verdict will be passed, the judgment given. Knowing this, how can we remain silent or cowardly? 
We can only do so if we ourselves live in denial of the reality that we know has been revealed in the gospel. As we work our way through chapter 15, you will see that second threat, it's gospel persecution in in verse 18. But this is the more sinister threat. It's gospel deception. And thus we must be on the alert, not only alert for ourselves, pay close attention to yourselves, but also on the alert for others. Next week we'll turn the corner, look at the positive from the false gospel warned to then the true gospel pictured. Father, you have given us a weighty story here an intense picture of your holiness and your judgment. Lord, if we have been ashamed of that, forgive us. If we have grown silent about your holiness and judgment, forgive us. Let us, Lord, as we explain the gospel, let us give the full gospel, highlighting the glory of your grace and your holiness. Father, I also pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, open up our eyes to see the nature of our faith. And that you would change the heart that you would attach those who perhaps are not attached to the vine, attach them to yourself and produce in them a fruit unto your glory. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.